0: Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I am attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, your weekly dose of civil rights and criminal injustice system news. We're talking about the California Supreme Court's decision overturning Scott Peterson's death sentence, the case of Torres versus Madrid, pending before the United States Supreme Court right now, and a peek behind the curtain into juvenile interrogations as two teens accused of killing a woman in Logan County have their interrogation videos released by the media. In segment two, as promised, we'll be discussing the rise in domestic violence incidents and death in the state of Ohio during the pandemic, or was there? To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Follow us on all of our social media channels, including Facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at TLOBJ. And look to the law office of BrianJones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that the California Supreme Court has ordered a second look at Scott Peterson's conviction? for killing his pregnant wife, Lacey Peterson. We discussed this a few weeks ago and the case is back in the news.
1: This is pretty amazing uh, that it would be back in the news. And I mean, although me being a mom and I'm sure that all parents out there feel a little twinge of uh, sadness over this whole thing, things do need to run correctly, and justice needs to be served, and there are protocols for a reason, and so I guess you can enlighten us on what happened here and why.
0: Scott Peterson's attorneys filed a 423-page habeas corpus petition appealing the conviction and the death sentence in his case. Now, the death sentence was already vacated as we discussed several weeks ago on this show, but now the California Supreme Court has returned the case to the trial court for consideration of a new trial on whether Scott Peterson is guilty of killing his wife. The errors that his attorneys allege make it seem that the trial was unfair because of bias on the part of jurors, jurors who were improperly dismissed based on their opinions about the death penalty, a variety of evidentiary rulings during the trial and the effect of the extensive pre-trial publicity that that case garnered.
1: Well that is really interesting. So how could they how could Scott's attorneys possibly get the information about the jurors if attorneys are not supposed to talk to jurors?
0: The prohibition about talking to jurors only applies during the trial. After the trial is concluded, uh, jurors are free to speak with the attorneys or choose not to speak with the attorneys involved in the case. And of course, in a case uh, as important and with as much publicity as the Scott Peterson case, his defense attorneys almost certainly conducted pre-trial investigations of the entire veneer, including background checks, social media and uh, docket research. Now, after the trial was concluded, the jurors were absolutely free to discuss their deliberations with whomever they please, be it the prosecutors, the judge, the defense attorneys, the media, or on their own personal blog or social media pages. In that regard, the deliberations themselves are secret only while they are occurring. Once the verdict is announced, any juror can discuss their deliberations and their thoughts about other jurors during deliberations and whether there were any issues or biases that they identified in their fellow jury members wow
1: i have never heard this before this is really interesting i mean it would it would seem to me that if everybody knew this the jurors would be really careful about what they say and do during a deliberation so does all this mean that a juror doesn't have a right to privacy when it comes to the deliberations?
0: Well, Erica, I think you're exactly right about the effect that modern information sharing through the internet and specifically social media can have a chilling effect on how jurors behave. You know, historically, the only people that would ever learn of what went on during deliberations would be jurors, their close friends and families. But today, a juror can go on social media, explain their entire thinking process and the process of their fellow jurors, and expose what is what goes on behind those closed doors, and possibly even misconstrue what goes on behind those closed doors. And I think this is, this is a problem for the jury system as a whole, because jurors are supposed to be able to go into the deliberation room and do the right thing, whether it's the popular thing to do or not. Um, And and I think if they fear their decision-making process is going to become the object of public scrutiny, they may not make those decisions in the future. Now, jurors can absolutely exercise their right to speak or not speak about the case as they wish. And they can exercise all of their rights as it comes to any harassment, unwanted contact, trespassing by the media, the public, or even the attorneys involved in the case. In a post-conviction investigation, it is normal for the accused, the convicted individual to hire private detectives, or trained investigators to approach and discuss the deliberation process with respect and professionalism. Now, Recall that jurors have also sworn an oath to follow the law and execute their jury service to the best of their ability in accordance with the law. And many jurors feel compelled to share perceived coercion or improper behavior during their deliberations, sometimes uh, long after the case is resolved. Now, we applaud this bravery and we thank jurors for coming out and respecting and valuing their role in the system and calling out people who did not respect the important role of the jury in this case.
1: I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that in some of these cases, it is very hard to have an unbiased opinion. But that is the job that they signed up for with this jury selection. So you got to hope that everybody is going to be as close to that as possible.
0: That is a critical aspect of democracy in action. I believe that the role of the jury is one of the final standing bastions of the foundation of the modern democratic system as, Uh, as conceptualized from the Magna Carta into the United States Constitution. And protecting that right is critical on both civil and certainly criminal case decisions because it's the people who should tell the government what to do, not the other way around. Now, interpreting those decisions is the job of the United States Supreme Court and their fall term has begun. And this week they heard arguments in the case of Torres versus Madrid, a a case about Fourth Amendment issues and law enforcement accountability in excessive force situations.
1: What are the circumstances in this case? Because it seems a little hazy and complicated.
0: So the central question is whether a person who has been shot by a police officer but managed to escape whether they were seized under the Fourth Amendment definition of that word, and therefore able to sue the officers for a violation of their Fourth Amendment rights. Now, this is an incredibly dangerous case because it could create a legal loophole and cement officer immunity in a variety of excessive force cases.
1: So Brian, is this a case where police officers were using excessive force to apprehend their woman in this case?
0: No, in this case, Ms. Torres was sitting in a car um, and suddenly was approached by armed individuals who had no identifying markings, they were undercover officers, and she thought that she was being carjacked. So she tried to drive away from these individuals. The officers then fired over 13 shots at her vehicle, two of which struck her in the back. Now she attempted to drive to safety, Uh, her vehicle crashed, and she ended up taking a bystander's vehicle that had been left running with the keys in the ignition and drove herself to the hospital the unidentified officers who assaulted her mistook her for a different suspect. Ms. Torres had no criminal involvement prior to this incident with the police. So
1: she was just an ordinary citizen having her regular day, See some people approaching her vehicle think she's going to get carjacked and takes off, hits somebody else's car, takes that car to the hospital to try to save her own life because she's been shot in the back a couple times. Correct. Wow. <laughs> that is that 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 seems like she should have a right to sue. I mean, hold on a second. So would this be a criminal or a civil case that is pending between, before the, that is pending before the Supreme
0: Court? This is a civil case. Ms. Torres has filed a civil rights complaint against the officers who shot her. However, the suit was dismissed at the trial level because Ms. Torres, according to the court, failed to show she was seized by the officer's use of force since despite being shot, she did not stop or otherwise submit to the expression of authority. The court found, quote, an officer's intentional shooting of a suspect does not affect a seizure unless the bullets terminate the suspected movement or otherwise elicit submission. So what the court decided was, well, they didn't kill her and she got away. So she was never seized, she was never captured, under the Fourth Amendment. This is a direct violation of prior precedent by the the United States Supreme Court and other courts of appeals that clearly state that a seizure is any force used to restrain movement, even if that use of force is ultimately unsuccessful. If the Supreme Court goes along with the lower court's decision, it would drastically alter that precedent and give police officers incentive to shoot, to kill, rather than use alternative means to subdue individuals. It is a critically dangerous precedent to set for Black, Indigenous, and people of color over police communities throughout our nation.
1: Wow, it does it sounds it sounds terrible, and I cannot believe that the decision came down the way it did. And I, I, I feel really bad for Ms. Torres.
0: Here's hoping the United States Supreme Court gets this case right. Now, here in Ohio, Logan County authorities have released the footage of the juvenile interrogations in the homicide investigation of a local photographer who was killed when a log fell on her in Hocking Hill State Park at Old Man's Cave.
1: So I feel like this particular case is really prevalent to where you live. I haven't heard of this one before. It sounds horrible. Can you bring us up to date on what happened in this particular case?
0: So after several months-long investigation, two teens were identified as having pushed a large log off a cliff at Old Man's Cave in Hawking Hill State Park. The log fell on and instantly killed a beloved local photographer who was taking senior pictures for some of her clients in the area. Now, the teens were initially charged with murder as adults, but later through a plea bargain secured a a resolution to a guilty plea to manslaughter and sentencing as juveniles. Now, recall the difference between murder and manslaughter is that malice predisposition. So the difference is intentionally causing somebody's death versus recklessly acting in a way that is likely to cause someone's death is the difference between what they were originally charged with and what they pled guilty to.
1: Tell us a little bit about the interrogation videos. What stands out to you when you saw the videos?
0: What stands out to me first is that these videos were even released. Typically, juvenile investigations and the information that they uncover, especially when it relates directly to the juveniles, um, is not released to the public. However, there was incredible media interest. The individuals were charged as adults, and ultimately these, these videos became public record and were accessed and disseminated. Now, in the video, we see four law enforcement officers um, packed into a tiny room uh, with the teen in question in the teen's high school with no way out for the teenager. The interrogations each last more than two hours um, and only one teen had a parent present.
1: Wow. We've talked about in the past how... Adults even will feel the authority of the law enforcement officer and just feel like they have to answer the questions that are asked because they are an authority figure and we have been raised to respect that and answer the questions. I cannot imagine what it was like for the kids who were stuck in a tiny room with three large law enforcement officers, nowhere to go. And they're all basically questioning them. And so if I was, I'm just trying to imagine myself in high school, having, hopefully this was not something they did on purpose. It, it sounds like it might've just been a fluke accident. But I, in any case, getting questioned like that after doing something where somebody ended up dying Uh, It it seems like a situation where you'd be very nervous and apt to answer any question just to get the heck out of that room.
0: Right. So police officers frequently take advantage of the social pressure that students already feel in school. You know, your classmates told us you said it. Your classmates told us you did it. Um, You know, your teachers are here they know you did it and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be upset with you if you don't confess and the right thing to do is confess and you're going to feel so much better after you confess and you're not going to get in any trouble if you confess. Um, And if you, you know, if you lie to us, you're going to get in trouble with your school. If you don't talk to us, you're going to get in trouble with your school and because you're in school, you don't have any rights. They, They manipulate these children um, into making, into feeling like there's there's no way out of the room except telling the police what they want to hear, um, and that's what we see in this video, um, and it makes a child feel both um, autonomous but also lacking in any their own individual authority. Um, it's a it's a highly coercive strategy, and oftentimes they involve school officials in the interrogation and use their authority as administrators and the potential for school consequences to coerce statements out of students.
1: So why was one parent there and the other one wasn't? I know if it were my child, I would absolutely be there.
0: Well, first, Erica, parents don't have a right to be present when their minor child is interrogated. Uh, The minor child can exercise their right to remain silent. but there's, there's no rule or law that requires police to allow parents to be involved. Now in this particular situation, one student succumbed to the pressure um, and because his parent was unavailable, he participated in the interrogation without a lawyer or a parent being present. The second parent didn't help her son's case at all because she was combative and made inflammatory statements comparing the effect of her witnessing her child's arrest to being struck and killed by a log herself. So she was present and observing, uh, but, and she was able to provide context to the law enforcement's behavior and tactics, uh, but she didn't do anything to help her son. Now, the best course for both of these students would have been to remain silent and request an attorney. Whatever the school is going to do, the school is going to do. If the police are going to arrest him, the police are going to arrest him. You've got to allow that to happen and trust that your lawyer is going to fix it on the back end. Because in this situation, all they did was make their their situation worse. There is only one opportunity to get out ahead of an investigation and an unsophisticated, emotionally immature child trying to talk his or her way out of charges is not the way to start.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And we both know from all of the work we've done together that adults mess it up. And as you said, the parent messed it up, but I can tell you probably the funniest situation I've personally seen in court. And I don't go to court very often. I'm not an attorney, but I did just recently go through a divorce and I was waiting to have something heard, some, some motion heard. And uh, the woman in front of me was dressed very unprofessionally and scantily. And she was waving her finger at the judge like this to try to explain something. And she was representing herself. And then next to her was her ex-boyfriend. I don't think they ever got married. And He was just sitting there quietly and letting his lawyer speak for him. And no matter what she said, she was trying to bring up all kinds of things that were irrelevant. Uh, he cheated. He's this, he that. And she was getting out of a drug program. I mean, she just wanted to see her kid, but she was not helping the situation. <laughs> I don't know that I would want a child spending time with this woman the way she was acting in court. So, yeah, absolutely. This is the time where I say, if you have an issue, I mean, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but I personally wouldn't want to speak for myself in an emotionally charged situation either. And I don't think anyone should. You should hire a professional. If Brian Jones is in your area, you are very lucky because the office of Brian Jones, they they keep up to date on everything that's happening in the law, all the changes, they have the best strategies. And, you know, even if you just sit down and talk to them, they're going to be able to tell you what the options are and uh, you'll feel better. If you hire them, you'll feel even better (laughs) because they do a great job. So that's my plug for you, Brian, today, but I'm really excited to hear about this next interesting topic during our show today.
0: Segment two is an incredibly interesting topic, Erica. So let's move on to that right now. So segment two today, we're talking about the report issued by the Ohio Domestic Violence Network, which asserted that 109 people died from domestic violence incidents between July 1, 2019 and June 20th, 2020. They claim that's a 35% jump from the previous year. However, the statistics and the information that they gathered is incredibly misleading.
1: What does the rise in deaths indicate?
0: First, it's important to look at the data that is relied upon by this special interest advocacy group. Of the 109 deaths, 26 of them were suicides and still others were related to mental health issues as well as domestic violence issues. Now, this organization has a vested financial interest in inflating the data that it's collected because it depends on public pressure and outrage to influence the legislature to allocate more funds and to support its application for grants and other funding sources. And the definition of domestic violence in this report is applied to a broader scope of individual interactions than what is covered by the law. And it includes uh, allegations of domestic violence between partners who have never resided together, interfamily violence between family members who do not live together. Um, so it's it's an incredibly overly broad definition of domestic violence that's uh, that's reported by this non governmental organization.
1: Wow, it seems like there's. Definitely a lot to consider. Can you tell us what is the difference between a domestic violence situation and just a regular run-of-the-mill assault?
0: So under Ohio law, the distinction is the addition of the victim being a family or household member. And Ohio law defines that as any person related by blood, marriage, former marriage, step, foster, and biological parents of children um, and any individual who presently or previously resided in the same home within the last five years. So in that regard, you can count a fist fight between two cousins who see each other once a year and have never lived together as domestic violence. And likewise, uh, an argument that turns physical between two college roommates is domestic violence. And it's, it's a significant stretch of the law and truly detracts from actual issues of domestic violence that have arisen during the pandemic. This blatant grab at fear-mongering really moves the focus away from what the real issues are and the mental health struggles that people have had to deal with because they've been locked in their homes for six, eight months and, and refocuses it on a, a false fear-based uh, over-exaggeration of reality. Now, the issues that are real are increased physical confrontations between actual partners, an increase in gun violence, an increase in arrests for disorderly conduct on private property, for example, uh, arguments in the the you know the, the Karen's that refuse to wear masks when they walk into private businesses. Um, you know, situations where police are called and they can't determine who the initial aggressor is, so they charge everybody. Those sort of situations are very real and should be addressed um, by, this, by this non-governmental organization, because those are the real domestic violence issues that need to be addressed in light of the pandemic. Not suicides, not, uh, you know, the second cousin twice removed who gets in an argument with his other cousin at the family reunion. That's that's false information. That is inaccurate reporting of statistics. And it's used strictly to generate and, and churn this culture of fear that this organization lives on.
1: So from a criminal defense point of view, what are some of the issues that you've seen with domestic violence during this pandemic?
0: False allegations of domestic violence have always been a problem because it's leverage that one spouse can use against another in a custody fight or even in a financial separation. Um, That sort of allegation can be used as leverage and the pressing or... Uh, removal of charges has always been an issue, but during the pandemic, these allegations take on a whole new level of danger because the falsely accused person can be forcefully removed from their home, ordered to stay away through protection orders, protection orders that force them to endure significant financial burdens during the pendency of the case, such as maintaining utilities and paying the rent or the mortgage at a home that they no longer live in, while they also have to try and find new housing that's socially distant or uh, not creating a risk to their own health during the pandemic. Additionally, under federal law, anybody who is accused of domestic violence must be removed and incarcerated at the time that the police become aware of the incident. So these individuals are going to jail, which is an incredibly high risk environment to their health and to any, the health of anybody that they come in contact with in the following days and weeks. Now, early in the pandemic, police officers weren't conducting these in-person investigations. And in some situations, accused persons were waiting weeks to receive a court date to begin defending themselves. Civil protection orders and restrictive bond terms are handed out like candy. Um, and it puts families in very difficult situations where parents can't coordinate to make sure their children are properly cared for, receiving proper supervision, receiving proper schooling through online portals that we all have to deal with now. And the, the credible allegations of violence that stem from increased financial pressure on families and parents who have been pushed to the limit with kids home from school and attempting to work from home at the same time, generates a financial insecurity and hardship that this toxic socioeconomic brew and results in increased interpersonal conflicts. So when there are credible allegations, when there are truthful allegations, those are uh, kind of pushed to the back burner when the false allegations uh, are, are increased and, and you create this terrible stew of, of problems that the police really should be doing, and the courts really should be doing a better job of separating out.
1: So yeah, I mean, I can see all of that happening and it does seem like the perfect storm. So I know that you have some great suggestions on holistic techniques to keep your anger and temper in check during these trying times um, of the pandemic.
0: Absolutely, Erica. We want to make sure that everybody knows that meditation and mental health support is available via video visits, online counseling, and a a whole array of stress management apps. You can get an individual counselor on a text message basis, and you should use that because everybody is under an incredible amount of stress right now, and having somebody to talk to is a critical coping mechanism to deal with that stress. Scheduling time outside of the home and on your own to enjoy activities that you used to enjoy before the pandemic, especially outdoors and especially with family pets because studies have shown time and time again that engaging with your animals is a great way to improve your mental health. When tempers do flare up, seek physical separation. Remove yourself to any other space You possibly can until you feel calm enough to engage peacefully. That may be an hour. That may be a day. Exercise self-care and self-compassion. Don't be too hard on yourself. Our clients receive the benefit of our holistic approach. And you shouldn't wait until you become a client of ours to take control over your mood and your social interactions. We don't know how long this pandemic is going to last. And we have to prepare for a new way of life.
1: I agree. And mental health is super important. It's never been more important than it is now where we are going through these trying times. So, I mean, just like taking a minute and enjoying the things that you really like as you were saying is, is important. And honestly, this probably sounds a little cliche and I'm not a very religious person, but I think counting your blessings and really, um, enjoying the things that you have and, and just going back to enjoying some of those things that you have that maybe you haven't been, been paying attention to for a while. So, uh, train your dog. That's like something I've been doing, you know, it's like over 25 tricks, <laughs> like getting reacquainted with your kids and spending a lot more time with your kids. And you may have to, you know, take some breaks, <laughs> occasionally when you're schooling them because, oh my gosh, being a school teacher is difficult. Uh, and so helping out with that online schooling is hard. But I mean, I, I do, I think it's like all of the things that you mentioned are really gonna help you keep, um, you know, a calm demeanor. And, you know, eventually it's like, if you walk the walk, talk the talk and then you walk the walk and then you eventually you actually are enjoying these things again, and, uh, and you feel good. Thank you so much for those suggestions. And I do hope that everybody is taking care of themselves out there.
0: You're absolutely welcome, Erica. And, and I agree with you that gratitude practice, and sometimes just faking it until you make it are key avenues to ensuring your mental health stays healthy during this insanity of, of a period in in human existence. And I'm going to engage in a little bit of gratitude practice right now and thank you Erica for joining me today and thank everybody who's listening to our show for taking the time out of your day to learn about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system in order to stay informed about how non-governmental organizations are warping data to further their fear-based agendas, holding police and the government accountable for their missteps and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash central Ohio criminal defense or on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at TLOBJ. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as our featured topic next week, which will be the trial tax and how it suppresses the accused and how it punishes the accused from exercising their Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we separated, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And today to all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended."